Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the unimaginable gift of your Son. Uh, we thank you for the incredible love that you demonstrated, that you manifest, that you made visible for us. And so today as we look back to the birth of Christ, we recognize your act of love in that, that you sent your only Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins and to be the Savior of the world. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. Amazing how God's Word all seems to line up right on track with my sermon schedule, uh, so that on Christmas we get to look at the arrival of Christ into the world scene and see the love of God in it. We are quickly heading towards the end of the little epistle of 1 John. Going to be sad to see it go, but we're going to uh, still spend a few more weeks in it and uh, enjoy every moment of it. We are looking at faith, fellowship, and forever. This is John's ultimate conclusion, where he's pulling together all the threads that he's sown throughout his book, and he's, he's uh, showing us exactly where the rubber meets the road. He's showing us what it all means, all the doctrine that he's laid down. What does that mean for us? And one of the most important doctrinal truths that John shares with us is this fact that God is love. And so that is the title of our sermon this morning, because this is the most prominent statement in all of this, probably all of this book. The main idea this morning is that Calvary is history's climactic example of love. It was on the cross that God demonstrated visibly and finally how much he loves us. That he died to save the world, which despises him. And now we live through him, identified with him through regeneration, and possessed with the Holy Spirit, which turns doctrine into action. And so I think we can all say, praise God for that. Remember, though, this all comes out of the final section of John chapter 3, where he made this statement that this is God's command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's proper orthodoxy. We want to think and believe the right thing. And that we love one another, just as he commanded us. This is orthopraxy, the proper action, the right actions coming from the right doctrines. This is the statement that he's expanding here in this section. Last week, we looked at the expansion of believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Here, we look at the expansion of what does it mean to love one another, and how do we do this? When we look around the world, we see a mimicry of God's love. I've watched a couple movies in the last week. You always seem to watch more movies around Christmas time, I think. And all of them seem to have this idea of self-sacrifice, sacrificing for someone you love. But when you really dive down into it, it's really self-serving. This self-sacrifice is always tainted with some desire that the person has, either of praise for their sacrifice or of serving their own family or loved ones. But when we look at Christ's sacrifice, we see that it was for people who hated him. It was for people who were unlovable, people who were unlovely the hardest people possible to love, mankind in their sin. And so when we look at this, we see God's ultimate example of love, and then we're commanded to do the same thing. 
And there is no possible way in our flesh for us to do this. And so he also reminds us that we have the gift of the Spirit and that the Spirit does this in and through us. So this morning, since it is Christmas and we want to get you all out of here soon so you can go be with your families, there's just two points. We're going to look at our calibration. The last two weeks we've seen this idea of calibration where we want to calibrate our thinking and our action to God's perfect standards. And then we're going to see the correlation. Because of this standard which we have held up by Christ, how does that correlate to the way that we live? So we start in this correlation with our divine source of love. Now here, once again, and we've seen this week after week now, he begins with beloved, agapetoi. This specifically speaks to the people as if they were the object of God's love. As he is telling them what love is, he reminds them that they are identified as the object of God's love. John is very careful with his words. His choice of words tells us everything about his point. Now we all probably through a gritted teeth learned sentence grammar in high school, in uh, middle school, how verbs play with nouns and how adverbs play with verbs. But there is something called intersentential grammar as well, the grammar between sentences. And these clever little words called vocatives do not play any role within a sentence's grammar. They are for the purpose of telling you how the sentences relate to one another. And so when we look at all of these vocatives that John has, he has more than any other person in such a dense little book. When he is speaking of the child, that technia, he is telling them truths about what it means to be born of God. Because you are a child of God, born of him, this is what's true of you now. When he's speaking of this spiritual maturity, he's speaking of fathers and young men and young children, these different stages of Christian maturity. But look at this beloved that starts to show up. Almost every single paragraph he begins with beloved, beloved, beloved. This is all because God loved you. Because God loved you. This is a section dedicated to explaining how God loved us and the result of that love in us. And the result is, let us love one another. This is an ultimate command. In fact, he elevates this above every other command because they're all hinged on this. Faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, which is love for God, and loving one another, the result of this faith when it's properly worked out in our minds. 1 John 2.7, for example, says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. John telling us about that old commandment that Jesus had given him some 60 years earlier. He's saying to this congregation in Ephesus, the commandment has not changed. The commandment is still that you love one another. This is the proper role of spiritual maturity. This is the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, 
how does the love of God abide in him? How is he demonstrating God's love if he doesn't act on it? Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 6 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And as Mark reminded us, we are not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. And this is the sum total of that law. When you pull all these commandments together that we get in the New Testament, they really focus around what does it exactly mean to love one another. And he tells us, right away after giving us that incredibly high demand. This is something we simply cannot do on our own. But notice this isn't because love comes from your self-sacrifice. Love comes from your flesh. Love comes from denying yourself and lifting up others. No, love comes from God. He is the source of that love. So that when you are acting in love towards your brother in Christ, you're not acting in your flesh, but you are acting in your new nature with Christ. We're born of him. This is now who we are. If we act differently, we're acting contrary to our nature. And sadly, many of us do act contrary to our nature. In fact, our whole world today is kind of obsessed with acting contrary to our nature. We have people self-mutilating to try to identify as a different gender. We have children in our elementary schools pretending that they are animals. We have a tendency to act contrary to our nature. We have a tendency to try to run from who we are. And that requires negative volition towards who we are. We have to choose to step outside, to step outside of our nature. Every time we choose to hate someone, this is a practiced and learned response from the world. This is not who we are because we are born of God. We are born of spirit. We have his nature and his character, and we ought to learn to live like who we are. We ought to learn to be filled with a new sort of power. One that if we have never practiced this sort of life, if we have never practiced dependence on the Spirit, the only thing we've ever experienced being fueled by is the power of the world, Satan's system. As Christians, if we don't learn scripture, if we don't learn doctrine, we're going to continue to be fueled by the world. We're going to continue to try to love the world's way rather than God's way. We're going to keep trying to do this by the flesh rather than letting the spirit work in and through us. Everyone, or for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. There are two truth statements here. If you are loving, if you are loving God's way with God's love pouring through you, you are born of God because God's love cannot flow through one who has not been born of him. An unbeliever cannot produce the love of God, cannot function as that conduit to the world. But not only that, but an immature believer simply will not be acting in his nature. One who does not know God, one who has not learned him from his word, one who is not occupied with the mind of Christ. This person is not going to be successful in love. 
This person is going to continue to try to love the world's way because he's never learned anything different. He doesn't know who God is. So not only is this person who is loving born of God, but you can see that they have matured in Christ. The mature believer loves and is characterized by this love. 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The new nature cannot produce any sin, but the old nature cannot produce any good. The old nature simply cannot produce the righteousness of God. It cannot produce the love of God. The spirit in us is the only thing that does any good. Notice though in verse 8, only one of these truths is repeated for the one who does not love. The one who does not love does not know God. Not being born of God is absent from this because it is perfectly possible for one who has received this ultimate gift of love from God to not fully understand it, to not know God, to not know who he is in God, and to not walk in the love of God. But we ultimately see that not only does love come from God, but that is a definition of him. That is a characteristic of him. Now, we cannot say here, as some do, that love is God. No, love cannot be the subject here. God is the subject. God is defined by love. But we cannot look at all forms of love in this world and say that any love is God. Accepting someone for who they think they are. This is not of God. But accepting someone for who God says they are. This is love. And this does take a level of spiritual maturity, of knowing his word. Because when we love someone else, it's not defined by their standard of how they should be loved. It's defined by God's standard of love. He is the ultimate standard of love. So if it is contrary to him and his will, it is simply not love. In 1 John 1.5, we saw another definitive characteristic of God. And these form an excellent pair in John's book. This is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And as we discover that this light is emblematic of his perfect holiness, his righteousness and his justice, he is absolutely perfect and in him there is no blemish. There is no room for sin in him. It simply cannot be, it cannot be produced, but what is produced is love. And so not only do we have God's righteousness that demands condemnation for sin, but we have his love on the other side of it that fixes that problem for us who cannot produce the righteousness of God. We cannot produce anything good. And so God's light demands perfection and God's love supplies that perfection. God is both sides of the coin for us. 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the true God and eternal life. Now this is 
explanatory of who Christ is. Jesus Christ is the true God. The this can only refer back to Jesus Christ. But there's something interesting and unique here about the Greek of this sentence. When you get an and here, controlled by only one article, I put the article in red, the, and you have two singular nouns. That means that these are both the same thing. These are both explaining the same thing. You do not have one thing that is the true God and also eternal life. You have Jesus Christ who is the true God and also he is eternal life. These are both equally truths of who Christ is. So God is life. He is light. And he is love. And we see this in the interaction of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit towards us. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No one has seen God, but we have Christ to tell us of his attributes. We have Christ to tell us who he is and what he is like. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God's nature. And Christ taught John everything that John knows. And when John is recording to us these definitive statements of who God is, he's life, he's light, and he is love. We know that this came from Jesus, that this was God himself revealing himself to his apostles and not just anyone, but the apostle whom he loved, the apostle who understood Jesus' personal love in the most intimate possible way. First John 4.12 says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This answers a big question that uh, comes up in the life of a believer, where they just want to see God. They just want to feel God. They just want to experience God. This often is a letdown for some people. When they've entered into faith and they become those neonascoi, those young men, who are empowered and vibrant for the word. They get that kick of energy that young men get. But that kick of energy slowly fades and they have not built any lasting habits of trusting God. They've not used that energy to direct their old life away and direct themselves towards the new life in Christ. Because this is the ultimate goal of maturity in the Christian life. And this is how we see God. This is how we experience, just as the apostles experienced love together with Christ, this is how we experience that love, is when it's reaching its climax in us, when it's reaching that maturity, because God and God alone can produce this love in us. So if we want some sort of Christian experience, it is readily available but it's not going to be an ecstatic vision. It's not going to be signs and wonders. It's going to be the everyday real life, life in the body of Christ, just as the apostles experienced with Christ, his day-to-day -day presence, his day-to-day -day love towards them, his day-to-day -day example of who he is. 
You know, in the book of John, he gives us seven different miracles. A couple other miracles that we see throughout, but they're not focused on those seven miracles. The whole book of John, 21, 22 chapters, only tells us about 14 days of Christ's life. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? We know that he did many other miracles as well. But guess what? The day-to-day experience of these apostles wasn't all the miracles that we see in Scripture. It was God's presence together with them and his demonstration of his love at every moment. This is the ultimate Christian experience. Living together in the body of Christ, being filled by the Spirit, and loving one another. We have a perfect divine example of this love. 1 John 4.9 says, By this, the love of God was manifested. That means made visible. Made a physical reality before us. By this, the love of God was manifested among us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. This is a climax in John's letter. This is the point that he is getting to. This is the ultimate point in history. This is when everything changed. This is when the victory began. He sent his only begotten son. Now this is kind of a challenging word for us sometimes, only begotten. It's the Greek word monogenes, which means only, mono, and from the word genes, where we get genesis, or uh, progeneration, creation. That's challenging for us because we know that Christ is not created. He is part of the Godhead. So what exactly does this mean? Well, in Hebrews eleven seventeen, we get another example of how this word was actually used. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, By faith Abram, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, who had received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Now we might read past this and not think about Genesis, but if we do, we realize Isaac's not his only son. Isaac's not even his first son. Ishmael was his first son. Genesis 17:18. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Monogenes was not used for an only child, but for a unique child. One that stood apart from all others. It's not one and only birthed, but it's one and only of a kind. I will establish my covenant with him, with Isaac. This is what made Isaac so special. For an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. There was something unique about Christ. Something one of a kind about Christ. There is no other Son of God. There is no fourth person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is not a Son of God. God does have other sons in a different sense. We see in the Old Testament the sons of God referred to angels at times because they were created directly from him. Adam could be referred to as a son of God. 
because he was created directly from the hand of God. But Christ is not a son of God in the sense of being created at the hand of God, but by being unique beyond any other son of God. In any other sense, he stands above. He is the only unique son of God. And he gave that one, that son, not an angel, not one from among men, but he sent himself into mankind. He sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And that other side of the coin, again, of us living through him is, his us, is him dying for us. Through his death, we might live, being resurrected by the same power as he was resurrected. And this also means that we are identified together with him in his death. So that everything that we were before has died. And we must reckon that true. We must know that that is true. And this is exactly what I mean when I say that the spiritual life is a life lived in the mind. Because it starts right there. It starts with knowing who you are in Christ. Understanding your new nature because of him. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. He rescued us from the realms of death. But not only that we might have life, but that we might have it abundantly. This is his kind of life. It's not a death of a human life so we can have another human life to live. It's a death of a human life so that we might live in the spirit to him. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And this is an incredible truth that we have been given all things in Christ. The most incredible thing that could ever be possessed in this universe was given to us free of charge. The only valuable thing by comparison was given to us free of charge. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his own love towards us. Demonstration is another term that we might use instead of manifestation. He demonstrates it. He shows it to us. Something physical that we can see, that we can touch. Because remember, no one has seen God at any time. We can't see him. We can't touch him. But he makes himself visible, not only in his physical nature, but in his character. He gives us a ultimate demonstration of who he is. That in while we were still sinners, while there was no benefit to him from us, there was nothing we could give him, nothing we can give him, Christ died for us. So this is love, something totally different than the world knows, something totally different than the world can produce. In this is love. John is now defining love. Not that we loved God, that's not love, but that he loved us. In the absence of our love, he stepped in and loved us, he sought us out. And how did he do this? By sending his son. Now our NASB translations, they do a good job here. 
they supply the infinitive to be, but that's actually absent from the text. It's implied. This is a equal sign in essence. But what John does in the syntax here is he draws it even closer. He sent his son. His son is the propitiation for our sins. It is so close in nature that a verb doesn't even, isn't even necessary to identify them. His son is the propitiation for our sins. That's just who he is. And what exactly does this mean? This is perhaps, well, this is just an incredible truth. He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 2.2 2 has already used this. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is God's side of the coin to salvation. See, God has righteousness that needs satisfying. He has his perfect holiness. And when that is trampled on by man's sin, he can't overlook that. He can't look past that. God's love towards us is satisfied in that he took the fall for us. Not only did he seek out his enemies, but he paid the price of reconciling us to him. There was no, I will forgive them if they repent. There was just, I will forgive them. There was no, I will forgive them if they lay down their life and choose to serve me for the rest of it. There was, I will lay down my life. This is the kind of love we cannot comprehend without him. This is the kind of love that we really cannot produce. And notice as well that this was not just for us who have already received this. This is not just for those who God looked throughout history and saw that they would believe and so died for them, but not for others. He died for the entire world. In Romans 8, we're told that the whole creation was subject to futility, not because of what it had done, but because of Christ. He subject all of creation to futility under the curse so that when he died, he could die for the whole world. Because when he comes to die for man, all that's under man is going to be redeemed through Christ. And so for a time, it was plunged into darkness so that it could enter into light through him. This is the... Oops lost my background. This is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And it's present throughout scripture that Jesus paid for every single sin at the cross. Our sin is not paid for the moment we believe. The moment we believe, we recognize that our sin has already been paid for 2000 years in history. It was already nailed to the cross with Christ. And when we share the gospel with someone else, there is no question in our mind that Christ also died for that person. And there is no question in our mind that that person's sins have already been nailed to the cross with Christ. That person's sins have already been paid for. The most useless thing in all of history is that men are going to hell, not because their sins are not paid for, but because they did not receive the free gift 
of life. You see, this is what shakes us, especially after 500 years of living in a post-Calvinist world. Sins do not send a person to hell. Yes, it's because of sin that hell became a destiny of humans. But the individual sins of a person are not what send them to hell. It's unbelief. It is lack of life. Lack of sins cannot send a person to heaven. Only the presence of Christ's life, the presence of Christ's righteousness, this sends a person to heaven. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. How is he able to do this? Because every one of them has already been paid for. There is nothing unpaid for yet. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How is that possible? If our sins are not paid for until we believe, they're already paid for. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. This is that God made peace. God made man savable through the death of Christ. Much more having been reconciled, a past action with present results, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also now received the reconciliation. It is not the absence of sin that merits heaven. But heaven requires the presence of life. How do we get that life? It is by grace and by grace alone. You know, when you get to heaven and you're asked, what lets you merit heaven? The answer is not going to be my faith. That is how you received it, yes. But that is not what merits heaven for you. It is grace, and grace alone, because Christ died and paid the price for you. Grace lets you into heaven, and faith applies that to your account. John 3, 3 says, Jesus answered and said to him, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical, natural birth, and the spirit, regeneration, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And how is this accomplished? John 3.14 says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, a euphemism for the crucifixion, so that whoever believes will have eternal life. John 3.16. This is not a cheap verse. Everyone knows this verse, not because it's cheap, but because it is so rich. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus took care of the sin problem on the cross. He takes care of the life problem the moment we believe. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, our physical natural body, born of water. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so also it is written, the first man, Adam, the federal head of our race, became a living soul. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is the life that we need. And this is the life that he came to give. And so this is his divine standard then. We saw before how we calibrate our confidence, not by trusting in our hearts, but by trusting in God's word. We saw how we calibrate our creed, what we believe, not by experience, but by scripture, by God's revelation of what is true. And so now our standard for learning to love. This is not by the world's demonstration of love. This is not by the fluttering of our hearts. But this is by the ultimate example of love on the cross that is revealed to us in God's word. So if we want to know who God is and what his love is, we simply cannot exchange it for being intimately involved with his word, for knowing it, for reading who he is and applying it to our way of thinking. What is the correlation and the implication for our life? Because we have received not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also new life in Christ. What is the sound response? Again, he says, agapetoi, beloved, objects of God's love. This has been applied to your account, and this was done on your behalf. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, this is not the kind of if that we have in English. There are four different kinds of ifs in Greek, and this is what's called a first class, which means assuming that this is true. For the sake of argument, we believe this. Some even translate this since. Since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. We know that the Son has revealed God to us, and he has revealed him to us in his ultimate demonstration of love. He says to his disciples at one point, when they asked for Jesus to reveal God to them, to show them God, he says, you've seen me, you've seen God. 1 John 4, 7 through 8, though, we want to see how we can see God Notice who is involved here in this love. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not know God, or the one who does not love, does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested among us, that God has sent his only son. Now look, we have a distinction between these two persons. John doesn't do this often. Usually when he speaks of God, it is nearly impossible to distinguish the members of the Trinity. Remember I told you two weeks ago, John is still a Trinitarian. Just because at times he looks at all three as the one Godhead does not mean that he cannot distinguish the three members. And here he does so. God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Who are we learning about? We see Christ's act of love on the cross. We see his obedience to God, even unto death. But whose love is John telling us about? God the Father. He is giving us a visible, tangible demonstration of God the Father's love. God who is love in essence. God who is the ultimate demonstration of love. Genesis 22:11, we get a similar record with God when God is testing Abram's fear of him. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is what God used to manifest, to demonstrate visibly and physically Abraham's fear of God. So that when we look at the cross, we might say, now I know that God loves us since he has not withheld his son, his only son, from us. There is a natural result of this. Since God has loved us, the invisible God made visible through the actions of Christ. Then, if we love one another, God abides in us. Again, this is not the kind of if we have in English. And this is not the kind of if John used just a sentence earlier. This is a third class conditional if. This means if, and this may go either way. You may not, and you may love. But if it is true that we love one another, if this actually is working out, we can have confidence knowing that we are abiding in him. Because while we are not in fellowship with him, his spirit does not energize our new nature and love cannot be produced. But if we are loving one another, we are abiding in him. His spirit is fueling us. We are filled by the spirit. The spirit is producing love in us and his love is perfected in us. His love was perfectly finished on his side, on his account. But it has a goal, and it is seeking the goal of love being perfected in us, having its 
perfect result, which is not that it stops with us, his love coming towards us, but that love be reciprocated. And he has told us already how we are to love him. We believe in his son, Jesus Christ. We continue to believe his word and we love one another. This love that he loved us with goes out towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is love, his love perfected in us, that it doesn't stop with us. 1 John 2, 5 says, whoever keeps his word and in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. By this love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. We have also our spiritual resources found in him. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us from his spirit. Now in 1 John 3.23, where he told us, this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he has commanded us. The result that comes from that is the one who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The spirit whom he has given us is the evidence of what he has done in us. If we want to experience that evidence, we learn about it through Bible doctrine and we see it working its way out in our lives. Changed lives are an evidence of God working in us by the spirit. But notice the preposition here is not by the spirit, but from the spirit. Not just simply of, which is rather nebulous, of needs interpretation, definition. He adds this preposition that means from. It's John's go-to preposition for source. Because he has given us from the source of his spirit. And this is that source, that God's work is able to work through us that God's love is able to come through us. If that is true, it must come from the Spirit. And this is evidence of his working within us. Ephesians 5.18 speaks of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for, this, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, we get the result of it here, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The result of being filled with God is that our minds will be occupied with Christ. And being so occupied with Christ, it will naturally work its way out into being subject to our brothers and sisters, just as Christ was subject to us, willingly, sacrificially. Colossians gives us the other side of the coin of spirit filling. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, 
gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. So we look at the breadth of God's forgiveness that it was to anyone, and we look at the depth of it as well. We don't necessarily need the person coming to us seeking reconciliation for us to forgive them. This is contrary to all the logic of the world, where you're supposed to come to that person and ask for forgiveness, and then that person can uh, stand judge over your penance. Is it good enough? Okay, I'll forgive you. If it's not good enough, no, I'm sorry, I can't forgive you. Or this one, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. This is nothing like God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness seeks out the unrepentant. And it lavishes that love on them so perfectly and so completely. Man, if we were to love like this in the body of Christ, there wouldn't be those, I'm going to sit on the left side of the aisle because the person I hate sits on the right side of the aisle. I'm not going to that event if this person's going to that event. I'm not going to prayer meeting if that person's going. No, I have not heard any of that here, and I'm so thankful for that. But that happens. In the body of Christ, we act contrary to our nature far too often. Any contrary action is far too often. But where this even becomes how the world sees us, infighting, arguing, complaining, bitterness, what distinguishes us from the world if we are not letting the work of God flow through us? And it all starts with knowing who God is. And that is only possible through his word. Beyond all these things, put on love, Paul says, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And this is how we do this. This is how we love others. Every grievance that another person commits against you, that specific grievance was hanged on the cross already. And if God was able to forgive it, not winking at it, but paying the price that that could be forgiven, how could we hold that still against the person? But we ought to seek reconciliation. We ought to seek to forgive that person. Don't wait for them to take the first step. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is what he fills us with. The word of God richly dwelling within us. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Whatever you do in the word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so we have our spiritual resource of the Holy Spirit. We have God's power working through us when we are in fellowship with him, when we are yielding to the Spirit's work. And that all stands on the scriptural record, doctrine, 
if we don't feed the spirit doctrine, it's got nothing to work with in our lives. And so John concludes here, we have seen and testify the sound word of God. We have seen and we have testified that the Father has sent the Son, the Savior of the world. And this is how he began, isn't it? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We were with Christ. We embraced him. John leaned up against him at the upper room. John was the personal object of love of Christ, and he has come to tell us about Christ's love. His testimony of God's love could not have come from any other disciple. But John, once again, is inviting us into that intimate relationship with Christ. It's not Peter. It's not Andrew. It's not Timothy. But the one who had this intimate relationship with Christ, where when we see that he looked at and touched with his hands, we can go back to the letter of John or to the gospel of John and see that happening. We can see how close John was to Jesus. And when we say, we just want God to tell us exactly what decision we should make. If we want to experience Jesus in a dream or something like that, but we neglect his word. We neglect where he has actually been revealed, where he has chosen to reveal himself to us, not in a way that we get to interpret with our own minds, with our own senses, with our own uncalibrated heart. See, dreams, they're like abstract paintings. We want to see him there because then we get to define who he is. But here he gets to define who he is. This is his word. This is his revelation of himself in his son. The word or the life was manifested. It was made visible. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And this gives us such a vivid picture of what unity in the body means. It's not just us in our little congregation here. It's not just us in Tacoma or in Western Washington or in the United States. It's not just us in 2022 and however many generations we represent here. But it is everyone who has ever been baptized into this one body, into this one spirit. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Our peace, our love, our joy, it's all founded in the record of who Christ is because this preserves it for us today so that we might experience it just how John experienced it then. Without the physical touch of Jesus Christ, we can still feel everything else that came along with it because John, by the inspiration of the Spirit, has taught us who he is, who God is,
and what his son has done and the spirit makes it real. The spirit teaches us all doctrine, not just so that we can know it in our head, but that so that we can understand it intimately so that we can understand what it means that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. Our main idea this morning, Calvary is history's climactic example of love. It was on the cross that God demonstrated visibly and finally how much he loves us. That he died to save the world which despised him. And now we live through him, identified with him through regeneration, possessed with the Holy Spirit which turns doctrine into action. Praise God and let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Son, that you sent him to us so that he would die on our behalf and that we would be identified together with him in his death and so that we could live together with him in the identification with his regeneration, his resurrection, so that when we look forward to his return, we know with absolute certainty that we will be made like him because our nature has already been conformed to him. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.